0: Welcome. I'm so glad we get to gather together and worship today. We're going to be in the book of Luke chapter 17. If you are newer with us, I want to say welcome as well. But we are are walking through the book of Luke, which is one of the, the written records of what Jesus did when he was physically here on this earth. The entire Bible is the story of Jesus and his redemption of humankind. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of what happens when God... Almighty God, God the Son, came down. He took on flesh. He became human. He lived here. He did miracles. He taught. But most importantly, he fulfilled the complete righteous demands of God and then died for our sins, paying the penalty, raising again to live forever and proving he is the Almighty King. And so as we we hear that story and know that context, we look at the book of Luke and Jesus is is on a a walk it's called the road to Jerusalem if you read some people who talk about the book of Luke it just seems like he's walking and it just goes and goes and as he's walking he's teaching people he's teaching his disciples how to walk and follow him and so today we we've got little little chunks of what Jesus said and did along the way and, and there's several of them we're going to talk through them and kind of break them down into four major pieces today so, so, these are little pieces, but what as as I studied through this, what it reminded me of is just the the daily grind of life. Um, sometimes you know we, we we tend to think of the the big, glorious life defining moments that that we think, oh, it was that moment when this happened or it was this when this happened, but most of life is not those big life defining moments and and really and truly what really defines your life are not those huge moments that moment uh, for for some of those of you who have just graduated that moment you go off to the first job or that moment you go off we've got a a couple going on to uh, graduate studies that moment i mean it seems huge and it is But those moments are not going to define your lives as much as the daily, day in, day out pattern of what happens in you. Um, And this week, obviously, my mind has been thinking about Independence celebrations. And and I love history, love reading history, um, particularly military history. So so my mind, as I was studying this passage, went to World War One, the stories of World War One, World War One. Airplanes were around, but they were not a primary factor in that battle. As a matter of fact, tanks did not become a major part of that war until around 1918. They were around before, but that was really when they became a part of the war. And so most of this war was fought, quite literally, in the trenches. This is where we get the expression, in the trenches. What would happen is is there was a fortified German or Prussian government, who had built up their defenses with concrete and steel. Um, They were often called pillboxes because they were just a little tiny box covered with concrete, reinforced with a big machine gun in it. And anyone who got close was gunned down. And so the way the forces, our U.S. forces, the French forces, the British forces, figured out to attack this was to dig in. Another expression we get from this digging in, they literally dug in, they would carry a shovel with them, they would dig a trench and they would hide from the machine gun fire. So at night when they couldn't be seen or or moments in, in in a pause in the battle, they would dig in, get in a hole in the ground and hide and just pop their heads off and take a shot whenever they could with their M1s. These were not repeating rifles. They were, uh, I think they had 11 shots in them, if I remember right. It was a tough time. And this war was ugly and nasty. And it got to the point that these trenches, these, these holes that they would dig into the ground, became systematized. They figured out how to work them. At one point, there was a trench that went from Belgium to France. One trench. And these trenches weren't just one long straight line. They were zigzags so that even if an enemy soldier got into the trenches, he couldn't just you know, shoot down the trench and get everybody who was, you know, knock them down like dominoes. These trenches were often set in a series of four trenches, a minimum of two. And the front line, again, another expression we get from World War I, was the first trench that was very lightly defended. It was just a few machine guns. And in the second trench, that was where they had to hold the line. That was where most of the soldiers were. And they would actually have little, little crawl spaces they could get between these. They would have entire command centers dug in underground where the generals or the who commanders could give instructions to these guys in the trenches. And the war was fought like this. Men would stay in these trenches for months and months at a time. Trench foot, fourth expression, comes from this. that it was so wet and nasty, their feet would rot in the trenches. And this is how men fought this war, the great war. Um, Joseph LeConte, he's a historian in New York. Uh, he just wrote a book called A Hobbit Award Robe and the Great War. It's about Tolkien and Lewis who fought in these trenches. Uh, British guys but a lot of their stories, if you remember the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the, the Lord of the Rings, it's about war and, and the ugliness, the, the graphicness of war and greed. And a lot of it, he argues, is from this. He also argues that, that it so broke the spirit of the people that one of the greatest causes of the Great Depression, an economic depression here in the United States, one of the great causes of it was the depressed, broken spirit of the people who came back. They left with hope and they came back in despair. Life in the trenches. In Christianity, we have those grand moments, uh, certainly starting with our conversion. I remember to this day, kneeling down, Around a coffee table brought from Africa by the missionary uh, who was serving at a church stateside, and I remember kneeling down and trusting Jesus. It's it's just vivid color. I remember a couple experiences I had as a teenager. I remember the moment the Lord called me to be a pastor. It was it was a defining moment. I remember these moments kind of through history, my history. But the majority of my Christian walk has really been growth through the times I didn't even realize I was growing. It was those nights laying in bed when I chose to open up the Scriptures or begin to pray rather than drifting off into depression to which I'm prone. It's the moments... When that sin looms, and you'd want the sin, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, you choose Christ. These are the moments, those day in day out moments that moment you pick up the phone and you just make a phone call to the man you know is lonely say hey let's let's get lunch. Those are the moments that that Prosper your Christian walk. Those are the moments that make you look like Jesus. Those are the moments when we have this amazing opportunity as sinful people redeemed by Christ, where we can actually glorify God. We have that privilege. We have the privilege of glorifying God, God who needs nothing, who is so great and infinite. He created a billion universe or billion galaxies we can glorify him. It's an amazing, amazing thought. So so read with me. Luke chapter 17. We're going to read about life in the trenches and, and four little pictures we're going to go through. Life in the trenches. Read with me in Luke 17. We're going to start in verse 1. We'll read through verse 19 and then we'll break it down into four chunks. The scriptures say this. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, "If you had the faith of a grain of a mustard seed. You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping the field say to him when he has come from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say, prepare supper for me? And dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? You also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, and we have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten leopards who stood at a distance they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. And then one of them, when he saw he was healed, turning back, praising God with a loud voice and fell on his voice at Jesus' feet, giving thanks, saying, giving thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And when Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. So we're going to break this down. Four little sections. Four things that make the difference in the daily life, in the grind, in the trenches. The boring part of life. The majority of life. Four things that will make a difference. The first one, verses one through four, Jesus changes your relationships. So one of the things that uh, it, it just, ah, when I was going through seminary counseling classes, um, I, I had several um, just pastoral counseling. One of the most valuable tools we got in that whole thing was two books and they were worksheets it was just like fill in the blank worksheets. Some of y'all have got them if you've talked with me. All, everybody who's gone through premarital, y'all have seen the worksheets. All right? I love these things. because They're, they're scripture passages, they're, they're questions. Evaluate some things about yourself. Stay the scriptures. Apply the scriptures to yourself. And there's two books about the same size. The first one is relationships. So it's, all, it's problems like in a marriage relationships, problems in a friendship. About forgiveness, about restoration uh about parenting, about all and it's this big chunk, and then there's the second book, and the second book is everything else, and it's half as long all right this is what we struggle with, right? I mean, I think about every problem you had this week, how many of those boil down to somebody else right i mean that's 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 where we get ourselves into the mess, right? Jesus changes your daily relationships with people. It's not just the big dramatic thing. We come into church and we're all happy and cleaned up and nice and everything goes. He changes the daily grind of relationships. So let's look verse one through four. I actually have three different little pieces to this. The first one is in your life. We need to consider how our lives are affecting other believers. Jesus talks about causing others to sin, particularly little ones, kids. This is preschoolers, is, is the word, in, in, if you looked it up in the Greek. The first one he says, and he says to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. In other words, we're all tempted. Everybody's tempted. But woe, that's be careful, you're going to go to hell. That's what that word means in the synopsis. But woe to the one through whom they come. In other words, everybody's going to be tempted. Make sure you're not the one doing the tempting. Verse two, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast in the sea, than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. In other words, it's better for you to get the millstone that sat on my grandfather's property in Kentucky from when there was an old mill there. It's about this big around, big hole in the center. It it looks kind of like a bead, only this big around made out of a rock better to wear that as a necklace and go swimming than to hurt a child. And our, our minds, if your mind's like me, you went to, to the really bad guys, the predators. Uh, we saw the news story this week of the, the dad who just beat the crud out of the guy who was trying to, to find his daughter on the internet. And we think of those, yeah, yeah, it'd be better if they had the, the, the rock necklace and went swimming. But what about you? What about you? What is your parenting actually teaching? What is your, I, I know what you say you're teaching. I know what you want to teach because I'm the same way. What are you actually teaching? Are you like me? And sometimes you're, you're just way too grumpy. And you're teaching children. You're teaching your kids. There's no joy in Christ because of your attitude? Are you teaching your kids that church is nice when it's convenient by your attendance? Are you teaching your kids that, yeah, disobey me, but if it's convenient for me to kind of get around the rules, that's all right. What are you really teaching your kids? At work, what are you teaching your co-workers? Are you teaching your co-workers, yeah, put on the suit on Sunday and be, you can be harsh and a jerk all week long to those who report to you? Uh, what are you actually teaching about who God is? Are you teaching laziness? That it really doesn't matter by how lazy you are at work? What about your neighbors? Are you teaching them that God doesn't care because you don't? Jesus says, "Whoa, this is a hard word. Don't worry, we get, we get happier as the sermon goes, okay? So don't, don't, we, don't, we don't want to bog down here, but, but Jesus he says, "Watch out for hell." That, that's what that whoa word means is, be careful. You're teetering on the just like I'm not going to walk on the dark brown here because I would fall off because I have no balance. We're teetering on a spiritual edge. be careful what your actions do where that's your kids that's your spouse that's your coworkers that's your neighbors be careful about your relationships think about them that's the hardest part if i think about what are my kids going to learn for this man i'm going to make the decision right 99% of the time it's that time when you get home from work and you know you got two different kids grabbing you and you, all you want to do is set the laptop down what are you going to teach your kids What are you going to teach your coworkers? What are you going to teach your neighbors? What are you going to teach your spouse? That's the first thing. The second thing Jesus goes at is you actually have to care enough about the people in this congregation, your your brothers and sisters in Christ. You actually have to care enough to talk to them. I mean, wild. And I'm not just saying, hey, how are you doing? You actually have to have real conversations. Meaningful meat conversations. Look in verse three with me. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Confront him. That's a hard word. Confront him. And if he repents, forgive him. I think in our congregation we we do really well. Usually, not not one hundred percent time, we do really well at, at the shaking hand and greeting one another. Hey, how are you doing? Giving a hug. Um, we're, we're warm. We're friendly. We're pretty good at that. Um, we are really good when somebody has a problem. I mean, like, the flat tire, if, 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 if people hear about a flat tire, there's like five guys there. Inside. I mean, people leave work. It's awesome. I've seen that happen a few times. It's awesome. Um, my daughter had some minor surgery this week. She had her adenoids removed. She's doing great, by the way. Thank you all. Y'all, we got so many text calls Facebook messages. We had two people come to our house and bring stuff to Emma. Uh, I mean, we were loved. We had more offers for dinner than I could count. It was awesome. We, We do pretty well. I'm not saying we're perfect, but we do pretty well at that kind of stuff. What I fear we don't do well about is caring and loving each other enough that we don't just meet the physical problems we're concerned about each other's spiritual problems, not in a busybody, pain in the rear sense, but in a sense, I'm willing to ask my brother, okay, how are you really doing? I know what happened. And I know what you just told me. How are you really? You coping with it? how's stuff with your wife? I know. I know it's been crazy. How's stuff with your wife? Let's talk turkey. Or maybe we get the call from the wife and and we got to say, hey, bro. You need to start paying attention to your marriage. It's going downhill. We're not as good at that. We need to love each other that much. We need to love each other that much. When you have the friend who you know is prone to discouragement, you need to make the phone call a lot. You need to take the initiative. We need to call to our brothers and our sisters. Um, I love my wife. She's going to be mad at me for saying this. Um, I'm about to leave the country. I mean, <laughs> I'm good. Um, <laughs> I love my wife. She is so good at this. Her list... She, on her calendar, and we we share an iPhone calendar so we know where each other's going, that kind of thing, and <laughs> half the time we coordinate our schedules. She has calendared of people she needs to remind to get to church on Sunday. Every week. She sends out on Saturday night, you're just seeing her, you know, on the phone. She is sending out text messages to make sure people get to church. Because she knows they're prone to not get here. She loves them that much. She calendars to check on people to make sure she doesn't miss it. We got to get that, folks. We have to get that care for one another. We absolutely have to do it. And it is awkward and weird and not fun. We got to love each other that much. That's what Jesus does to a relationship. He changes the way we make. I care enough because Jesus has cared for me. I'm going to care enough about your soul to actually say something. And we've got to do that for you. I'm not just talking pastors here. I'm talking everybody. This is how a church functions. Alright, third thing in here. Forgiveness. Look at verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in the day. that's I mean, you've got to work hard for that one. Seven times in the day. And, well, we're not talking marriages, okay? You can pull that one off pretty easy. And turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is, this is hard. In other words, that person who is the jerk, how yeah, we love them anyway. We display a radical commitment to love in each other. Even when the other person absolutely, completely does not deserve it. And and please understand, this forgiveness, when it talks about the word forgiveness, that doesn't mean a touchy-feely, happy, huggy, you know, I, I'm not saying, hey, if there's someone who has, uh, particularly, let me say this to ladies, if there's someone who has acted inappropriately to you, just because they say, oh, I'm sorry, doesn't mean you start hugging every Sunday. There there are healthy, wise guards that we put in place. And Joe, Chad and I, if, if you have questions about what forgiveness means, and how to enact that in your situation, please contact us. So, I'm not, this is not saying, this is not Jesus saying, oh, just, you know, forget restrain, It doesn't matter if you get hurt again. No. But we wipe the account. Um, it's, it's like there's a ledger. I don't know that we, I don't think we have any bankers in the church thinking about that. But they keep records, right? They tend to know when you borrow money from them, um, they, they don't forget that. Forgiveness is wiping the account. You don't owe me anything anymore. Um, Movies, you know, the old Western movies, they're always, I'm going to take that out of your hide, right? That's the line, you know, what you did to me, I'm going to get it back out of you. Forgiveness is wiping that. You owe me nothing. Restoration takes two parties. It takes some work. And again, there, there are safety guards we need to put in place. But forgiveness must come radically. And here's why it must come radically. It's because Christ has forgiven you radically. Uh, let, straight up, how many of us sin seven times a day? Yeah, uh, that's morning. maybe. Might make it to morning. maybe. You know, breakfast, right? Christ has forgiven you radically. His cross is so powerful. He was the substitute for sin. That sin, that that debt that I want to take out of that person who wronged me. Christ has already paid the debt. He died for that sin. That person's sin on the cross. We always think of Jesus dying for our sins, right? <laughs> He died for that guy's sins too. A really rotten one. He died for that sin that you're holding on to that you just, I cannot let. He died for that sin. When you're holding that fist, that fist is not first against the other person. It's against Christ. It's against Jesus. We've got to wipe the account. Jesus... Radically changes your relationships. He radically changes your relationship. All right, number two. Like I say, they get happier and easier and shorter as we go, all right? So don't, don't, uh, don't feel too bogged down here. The first, second thing the strength of your faith is based on Jesus. The strength of your faith is based on Jesus. Look with me there in verse five and six. The apostles, okay, 12 disciples. Here's who's asking. For more faith. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, very little, you know, some of y'all who are cooks, you know, mustard seed, little bitty thing, you could say to the mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. All right. This this requires a little bit of explanation here. So, first, seed. Little bitty faith, right? Now, there are a lot of people out there, um, some of the, you know, quote, faith healers or, or faith health and wealth preachers who would say, think how much see, faith that mustard seed has. It's got faith, it can grow into a huge tree. Now, it's a mustard seed. It's sitting there. It's little bitty, it's tiny, it's a mustard seed. Not a whole lot of faith. That, that's Jesus' point. Jesus is saying, if you have faith, That's what you need. Because the point is not how big and amazing and incredible is your faith. The whole point is how big and amazing and wonderful is the person in whom you trust. In whom you place your faith. If I had faith, if I had faith that I could win a weightlifting contest, and I mean, I had a lot of faith, and I got the funny little jumpsuit and inter- paid my fee. That ain't doing me a bit of good, cause I ain't gonna win. I mean, I could have huge faith, but the person in whom I have that faith is not very strong. Um, sometimes it's—I've been trying to get healthy. Um, I'm getting there. I'm on, I'm on the right track. I've came a long way from where I was. But um, I used to hate in kids. My worst week of school ever was presidential fitness week. I don't know, kids, y'all still do that? I hated that week, okay? Give me achievement test all day long. I ate them for breakfast. Presidential fitness week? Oh, my life was horrible. Run, jump, oh. Um, but the worst... The worst, the big long line to the pull up bar. <laughs> you know how many pull ups I ever did? K through 12? None. Okay? So they, they had the back, if you couldn't do a pull up, the backup was they got you up into the pull up and you had to stay there. And they counted the second. Yeah. Yeah, I'm at a grand total of zero seconds, K through 12, too. It'd take like three guys to lift me up. Then, like You guys are fit. Good job. And then I'd drop. And then I started trying to, to get healthy as an adult. And I do a lot of pull-ups and chin-ups. Um, and, and with pull I mean, it's just, you know, you're just doing all you can. Get that chin above the dumb bar. I think we think of faith like that. It's like, if I, die, if I can faith, faith! That's not faith. That's a pull-up. Pull-ups are bad, okay? You should do them if you are healthy enough to, but they're bad. They're, they're, that's not faith. We don't strain and groan to get more faith. If you got faith, you're good to go. Because it's not about your faith. It's about the person in whom you place your faith. Your faith should be in Jesus Christ and Him alone. What the Bible says, the message of the Scriptures, the, I mean the whole thing, is Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus says it this way, I came to seek and save the lost. And that's us. When we're in our sin, we, we, are, we are fully headlong in our walk towards sin. And Jesus says, turn from your sin and turn to Me and trust Me to do the work for you. It's not you straining. He strained on the cross for you. It's not you being perfect. He was perfect for you. That's what faith in Christ is. It's humble, little, pitiful, see, faith? And a huge, amazing, perfect Savior. And so let me encourage you, congregation. You think your faith stinks? Yeah, it probably does. You think your faith? Yep, it is. But the person in whom you place your faith is what matters. Doesn't mean we don't need to trust Christ. But it's 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 just that simple. You trust Christ, and if you do, you have faith. Uh, so remember, back to the text here, verse five: the apostles. Twelve disciples, right? Um, turn with me. This is such a cool passage. It's really short. It's half a verse. Second Peter, chapter one, verse number one. This is actually where I came through um, in my devotions end of last week, uh, just reading through some of these books. Second Peter, this this just hit me like a ton of bricks. It was it was okay in a, in a sermon not talking about the breakthrough moments. Aren't the amazing things? I'm going to tell you about a breakthrough moment for me spiritually. Um, Simon Peter, one of these guys, right? He's probably the one who talked. He's always the one that sticks his mouth out. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Pretty good credentialing, right? To those who have obtained a faith. That's us, right? We have a faith now. But listen to how he describes the faith. This is so awesome. But to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours so our faith me and you us normal human non-apostles didn't you know hang out with jesus for three years here on this earth our faith is of the same standing as peter you know who said that peter think through this obtain a faith of equal standing with ours this is the apostles he just said apostle of jesus christ your faith is equal to that of the apostles if you trust jesus christ why it's the second half of the verse by the righteousness of our god and savior jesus christ because it's not about how strong your faith is it's about how strong the person in whom you have faith is your faith is of an equal standing to peter if You trust Jesus. So don't, don't, you know, squeeze the last ounce of faith and, you know, get a hernia and have to have surgery spiritually. Just trust Jesus. He can handle it. That's how you want. In the moment where you think, I can't handle it, yes, you're right. Jesus can. I don't have enough faith. Correct. But you have faith in the right person the faith you do have is in jesus so be encouraged be encouraged all right number one jesus changed your relationship number two the strength of your faith is based on jesus number three it's not all about you it is not all about you verse seven will anyone who has a servant plowing the field or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field Come at once and recline at the table. Now, remember, there they are in a day um, when they did have indentured servants. It was not a healthy thing, not a good thing. It was not a racially based slavery. But this master is not going to say, oh, you did such a good job. Relax. He's going to say, will they not rather say, verse 8, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink. You you have more work to do. That amazing thing you did, taking your friend out to lunch when they really needed it, that's awesome, that's good. That doesn't mean you're set and don't have to share the gospel for three years now. You're not good. You're not done. There's more work to be done. It's not all about you. It is not. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? In other words, that time you did share the gospel, are you sitting there, you know, ready to wear your badge in church? And, I, you know, I need awards and we feel that way, don't we? I shared the gospel. It was so good. It was awesome. I made it. I'm there. So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've done what was our duty. Sometimes it's just hard and you need to do the hard thing. Sometimes when you know what is right, I mean, it's really hard. You need to choose to worship and glorify Christ at the loss to yourself. Um, Talked to our students three or four weeks ago. Um, about the Copernican Revolution. So if you, if you remember back in history, everybody thought uh, Euro, Western Europeans thought the earth was flat. Copernicus with his telescopes realizes planets are doing weird things. It doesn't make sense if the earth is flat. Conceptualize that the earth is round. Radical thought. Number two, this was what got him killed eventually. He said, not only is the earth not flat, it's round, it's not at the center Of the solar system. And the solar system is not at the center of the universe. We're just on earth taking a ride around the sun. And many around him, politicians, religious leaders, said, Oh, no, no, it is about us. Trust me. We are the center of the universe. And rejected it. They they condemned his works as heresy. He wasn't even talking theology. He was actually a very devoted, godly Christian. that say, oh no, it's about us. We're the center. And we fight that constant same battle that Copernicus Copernicus did from a scientific perspective. We always want to put ourselves at the very center of the universe. It's really easy to see this in other people, right? They are so selfish, it's all them. Sometimes Christian life is tough. Sometimes we choose God's glory over what we want because we love Jesus. And it's hard. Teenagers, when you're choosing to remain sexually pure because you love Christ more than you love yourself, Thank you. Praise God for that. That's God glorifying. Parents, when you choose to love on your kiddos and treat them right, give to them when you are worn out and want nothing more than a bed and quiet. This is what God calls you to do. It's hard. It's hard. Husbands, wives, When you treat your spouse good, when they're treating you rotten, it's hard. But if you're doing that out of a love for Christ, it is worship to Him. You're exalting Jesus. So let me encourage you, love Jesus that much that it changes you in the hard moments. That He changes you in the hard moments. Last thing, number four. Have a grateful attitude for what Jesus has done. Uh, and no rocket science there. I mean, you could probably figure out what number four was if you remember the text. Have a grateful, thank Jesus for what he's done for you. He has been so good to you. He has been so good to us. Let me read the text again. There's really no comment <laughs> to be had. And then just be grateful in your heart to Christ. And it's so hard to teach kids to be grateful. And then you look at yourself and say, oh boy, I know why they learned it from me. Listen to the text on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. He entered a village and was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. Verse 13 and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests." This was the, the, Customary way in the law of Moses, they were to go show their pre- selves to the priests, so that they knew their disease was no longer contagious and they could be around other folks. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan, in other words, a foreigner, a, a kind of a half breed. It was, it was, they were half Jewish, half. Uh, the invading empire that had come in about 600 years before. They were looked down upon. They were certainly not spiritual people. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And when he said to him, Go and rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Like the story that happened, there were a bunch of righteous, religious, the good folks who were eating dinner with jesus and this lady came in, and she was known as a sinner, she was a prostitute, she was known as a prostitute. she wasn't subtle about it. She came in, she washed jesus' feet it was dirty. Grimy feet. She wept. She was brokenhearted. She was in love with a Savior. She had hope. She had joy. She knew a place where her sins would be forgiven. All the people around the table looking, it actually says they were looking down at her. Quite literally. She was on the floor. But very much they were looking down on her, they weren't like her. And Jesus replies, No, you invited me to your house, and there wasn't even a towel and some water to clean up when I came in, which was tradition back then. You, you didn't even have that, you couldn't even set it out. And this woman clean my feet with her tears and her hair. this isn't a plea to a radically emotional, you know, stir up the emotion like she was at that moment. But it's to say, she knew. She knew what Jesus had done for her. Because she knew the misery sin those folks sitting at the table they thought they were good they didn't know the misery of sin when you've been down to the depths of sin and you've experienced that pain that grief it brings you know what a good thing it is when Jesus takes you out you know what it means to be saved because you felt what it was to be lost and so the last thing I would say to you is be grateful to Jesus. Thank Him. Enjoy Him. Let there be a song on your mouth. And I know some of y'all don't, that doesn't need to be out loud and that's okay. Um, except in here where that's, that's you know, that's why there's a bunch of us. It, you know, it carries the ones like myself who don't have as glorious a voice as the, the ladies in Chad who are up here singing. Um, this week, let there be a song on your mouth. Trust in a big Savior. Pursue godly, good relationships and keep in there. Keep in there with Jesus when it's hard.